I use the urine dipstick. I mean, I, I remember I used to give a lecture to the students on, on you know, the pros and cons of each little pad on the urine dipstick. And I remember finishing once and one of the students saying, why do we even use it? I mean, you don't trust anything on it. And it's, you know, take it together. It can give you some information, but I'm certainly not going to base, you know, a huge treatment on, on the results of a urine dipstick because they can be quite variable. And particularly in cats, because cat urine is, well, cat urine. Sorry for saying sorry media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hello, this is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein and... Dr. Kelly St. Denis. Yes, our new famous co-host. Thank you, Kelly, for doing the next week too. And this is part two of our excellent session about chronic kidney disease in cats with the amazing Dr. Sherry Ross. And we talked last time about, you know, how to recognize them, but also uh, what diagnostic tests do you need to do? But we have this cliffhanger about now we need to treat them, and so I'm very excited to be back. So how are you doing, Dr. Sherry? I am doing very well. I hope everybody else is doing doing well, too. Um, talking about, of course, my favorite topic is, is how are we managing chronic kidney disease in cats. Um, so we did talk about diagnosis last time, but, but treatment for chronic kidney disease in cats, um, there's been some new developments, there are going to be some new developments, and then there's, I call them the old standbys, but they're old standbys for a reason. They, they make a huge difference in the outcomes of these cats and the quality of their life. And one of the things that I tell owners when I diagnose a cat with early chronic kidney disease, or even sometimes we get them with you know, advanced chronic kidney disease, the first time they notice is when the cat's not eating, and by then it's got stage four disease. But what I tell owners is the single most important thing you can do for a cat with kidney disease or a dog or guinea pig or marmoset um, is, is to feed them a renal diet. I'm, I think the amount of research and planning that's gone into those diets makes a huge, huge difference. Um, and we can talk about some of the other complications that can de develop with kidney disease. But I think if you can get them on a renal diet, might usually when they come in, they've been diagnosed, I'll get them transitioned onto a diet. Um, I do it pretty slowly, particularly with cats. And then I have the owners come back, usually at least two weeks after the cat's been eating exclusively a renal diet, and I get a new baseline. And that's my baseline going forward. Um, oftentimes you'll see when they come in initially, their potassiums are a bit low, they're a bit acidemic, their phosphoruses are a bit high. And all, if you get them onto a renal diet, when you get your new baseline, all of that is corrected itself because that's, that's what these yeah. I have a question for you now that you said something about switching the cat over to a, a renal diet. And you said, it, it take, I take a little bit longer time. What do you mean with it? How, how would you suggest to switch over a cat? Because we know that these cats, one of the things that often is brought up is that people are afraid to switch the cat to another diet because cats sometimes can be so finicky. And if they don't want to eat the diet, suddenly you have a problem. So one of the things, and, and you are so correct. Um, so cats can be very, very set in their ways about how, they're, how they want to eat. Um, and probably one of the most common 
consults that I hear from veterinarians, I, get, I take referring veterinarian calls every day, but is how, how do you get them to eat this diet? And if you suddenly just put a new diet down in front of a cat, unless it's not quite a normal cat, it is not going to eat that. It's never seen it before, it's not used to it. And so what I have my owners do is very slowly transition them onto the kidney diet. And very slowly in my world is over a month. Um, so people are usually will transition over a week or a couple of days if you're lucky, but I really, and I give my owners a set schedule. So if you say transition slowly onto the new diet and do it over, you know, some period of time, they'll usually mix it half and half for a couple of days, but by day three, they're feeding the full diet. And the, a cat's not going to accept that. A Labrador will, but a cat won't. So what I have people do is I actually write out a schedule on, and you know, week one they get this, week two they get this, week three they get this, and show them exact amounts and give them exact amounts. And and what I say is, and I tell everybody, and my new fellow here is about ready to lose her mind because I'm so insistent on food, is well you can't just say you need to feed a renal diet. You need to tell them what diet what form of the diet, how much of the diet, and how frequently to feed. It is, I treat it like a, it's a prescription. It's a prescription diet, so it gets a prescription. Um, and I give owners, you know, what their little feeding charts. And, and yes, I am certifiably insane, but it makes a huge difference. And these cats will transition onto these diets. I mean, it's, it's incredibly rare where I cannot get a cat transition over. I used to brag and say I've only had one cat I've ever, you know, not been able to ever transition onto a renal diet, but I'm up to three now, so I'll be quiet. I think the palatability really improved in those diets too. Like I've, I've been a, a vet for 21 years, and I know when we first when I first started, it was hard. It seemed harder then to get cats to eat the kidney diets, but now they're much more accepting of it because the palatability work is so good. I I couldn't agree with you more, and the the different you know forms that are available and yeah. the textures that are available, um, and you know, again, that I think having the owners on board is 90% of the battle. Um, and if you, if you tell owners here, just feed this diet, your cat has kidney disease, they don't see it for how important it is. If you say, this is, this is what we need to do. If you can do one thing, do this. Um, I think they recognize it and, and are more apt to put the effort in to get them to switch over. Yeah, I like the idea of sort of making it like a prescription. So it seems that much more important to them that they really need to do it. It's not just a diet you pick up at the store. Yeah, and, mo and most of my kidney disease consults when I'm talking to owner, I mean, diet is well over half of that discussion. Well, well over half. Um, diet and hydration are, are huge. And even the handout that I give to owners about chronic kidney disease, the first three pages, and yes, it's an insane handout, but the first three pages talk about nutrition and, and water. Um, but yeah. nutrition is huge um, because mm -hmm. if you can get them on the proper diet, everything else is, I'm not going to say easy, but everything else falls into place because, you know, their phosphorus is normalized, their acid base status, everything is optimal for those guys. So, no, no, I, I talk a little bit about the water thing. So what tips do you, what water tips do you give? Okay. Um, canned, canned diets, certainly, I think, you know, just because they're mostly water. And even with my own cats, um, they get, I mix a can of Katie stew with a can of water. They get Katie soup. Um, and that's not normal for cats to get them to eat something that watery, but my guys are just used to it. But they also will graze on the dry. 
Um, so mixing water in with the food, but you have to do that very slowly as well. I mean, I tell people start mixing a teaspoon in and see how it does and work up to the point where the cat kind of gives you, you know, the, that one raised eyebrow thing that they do that says, <laughs> what, um, is that? Yeah, what is that? It's too, um, the other thing that I'll talk to owners about are, you know, sometimes a cat would prefer a little bit of flavor in its water. And so I have them make their own chicken broth with just a hunk of chicken strain all the chicken bits out of it, make it quite concentrated, and then freeze it in ice cube trays. And then pop those ice cubes into a Ziploc bag and every, you know, every now and then pop an ice cube into their water dish. You have to make sure you clean that very, very well, particularly in these mm -hmm. climates down here. But, um, but sometimes it just is a little treat. It flavors the water and they'll, they'll drink more of it that way. Mm -hmm. Or you could do the same thing with tuna, tuna juice. Um, and I, you know, don't give it to them straight up. You have to dilute out their drinks a little bit <laughs> if they don't want tuna juice on the rocks. Um, but just doing that and then you can keep all those little ice cubes in the freezer so it's easy and that may entice them to drink more. Oh, those, those are great tips. And then the, the, the last question I have uh, before we go to, to a different topic is we still, it's a, the, tell us a little bit, tell us veterinarians a little bit about iris classification and then the discussion surrounding early renal disease and the whole protein thing, because I know there's two camps there too, uh, and and some people prefer to have a higher protein because they're worried about, you know, the muscle loss, and some people say no, 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 don't do that because protein is and phosphorus are really the bad things, and so we should reduce it. So give me your opinion on that. Okay, and I, I'm. I'm kind of the cheerleader for one of those camps in a, in a big way. <laughs> so um, so with, with cats with, with kidney disease, I think the, the proof we have is, I mean, it's grade one evidence from clinical trials. We know that if we feed these cats a renal diet, they live longer, they feel better, they do better. The argument that we're dealing with a cat that is muscle wasting because, you know, oh, it's got kidney disease, it's not eating, it's muscle wasting, you have to feed it more protein. You need to back that up a little bit to the point where you said it's muscle wasted, it's not eating. So if it's not eating its you know, normal food or it's not eating its protein that you're giving it, then it's probably not eating enough calories, period. So there's a big difference between calorie malnutrition for these guys and protein malnutrition. And what the, the other camp, um, can we call them the right? Actually, we should cut that out. Um, but what the other camp, what the other camp says, is that um, that they're they're protein wasting because they've got protein mal malnutrition. No, they just have straight out malnutrition. I mean, you don't have to dress it up. They're just not eating enough food. Um, and so, if you've got an animal that can't maintain its body weight on things that it loves to eat, there's no way you can expect it to do that on a renal diet either. And those animals, they need help. They need nutritional intervention. Um, so as far as, as the protein content in the renal diets, they do not cause muscle wasting. We know that all the amino acids that we need for those cats are in those diets and at, at more than adequate amounts, actually. There's quite a buffer zone in there. So if the cat eats to its caloric requirement, if it eats those diets, it's doing fine. It's getting plenty of protein. And I've got two other well, 14-month-old cats at home right now that are on mostly a renal diet on KD, um, honestly, because their big brothers are. And so, and so it's just easier to have everybody have the same dry, they get different can, but, and I, neither one of them, one of them's half squirrel monkey and he runs around the house like crazy, parkouring off of 
china <laughs> cabinets and everything else um and you know i have i have no worry about those cats not developing properly or not getting enough protein. I would never give it to a kitten, um, mind you, a growing cat. I, these guys didn't get access until they were, until you know, just a, a couple of months ago when they were adults. But, but there's plenty of protein in there for them. And as I said, their canned food is separate as well. But their two older brothers do have kidney disease, and so that's they just get KD. Kelly, I was I was going to comment. Like I mean, you, you said we have the evidence-based medicine. You know, the level one. And I know in my own practice, it was open for 13 years. And every year, you know, I have the cats on these renal diets and they're in higher stage two and they're in higher stage two. And I'm starting to think, these people are going to think that there's really nothing wrong with their cat's kidneys because they aren't getting worse, right? But it's because they're on the diet and they just really do well for longer. So I found that I wasn't seeing those end stage, you know, high stage three, stage four cats nearly as much once we were doing a lot of preventive care with it. Oh, and I absolutely agree. And I think that's, I mean, one of the, one of the problems we ran into my, when my study is that, that nobody was dying, which is, I mean, that's a really good thing. I was super excited about that, but it makes the statistics kind of a pain. Um, yeah. you get the median survival time if everybody's living. Yeah, I'm almost checked out of old age before that study was done. But, yeah. um, but we, I mean, some of those cats, the last cat from that study, which was a long time ago, died just a couple of years ago. I mean, yeah. and that's wow. a long time since, yeah. since we did that study. I mean, that was back in my resident days and I've had a lot of gray hair since then. So, um, but they, they can do so well on these. And, and I agree with you. I've had some owners say, you know, do we need to do all this? Look, everything's stable. Cat's great. I'm good. Yeah, no morbidity, no hypertension, yeah. no passing issues. Yeah. I think it's a big, that's a big paradigm shift from earlier times where you kind of thought, okay, the cat has chronic kidney disease. This is the beginning of the end. Right mm -hmm. now we're like, it's chronic kidney disease, but it's treatable in a relatively simple way. Um, and, and then if it gets worse, there's other options for treatment too, because, uh, but let's, let's go back to the iris stage. Can you very shortly describe what that means and why we're using it? Yes, please. Okay, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Um, so for the IRIS staging, so the IRIS stands for the International Renal Interest Society, and I always say it's a bunch of geeky veterinary nephrologists um, who who love kidneys and are devoted to kidneys. But they came up with the staging system um, just so we can divide these cats into different categories. We can re refer to them and know where they are in the in the range of their disease, and it makes it a little bit easier to give treatment guidelines and, um, as far as, you know, if you've got a stage two cat, you should expect these complications and you should intervene with this. If you've got a stage three cat, these are the things that you may start to see um, and you should maybe intervene with this in stage four. So there, it's stage from one to four. The one cats are the ones that we talk, the one cats are those that we talked about in the last podcast, the ones where you're, you don't really know that there's anything wrong with that cat until you start to see an elevated SDMA or the algorithms telling you, hey, you know, you should look at this cat that it looks like it may have kidney disease um, or you've been seeing their creatinine trend up. So those are, those are cats that still have a creatinine well within the normal range, but do have some kidney disease, um, you know, asymmetric kidneys, stones, things like that. Um, the, the stage two cats are the majority of I don't know, Kelly, do you agree? The majority of what we see, I think, in practice, when we identify them, we identify them in stage two. Yeah. Yeah. And, 
and again, usually screening blood work for dentals and things like that. Um, stage three cats are usually starting to not feel well, and so you may get that cat in because it's vomiting and not feeling well. Whereas stage four cats are usually quite sick um, by the time you see them, and we consider that more advanced kidney disease. So, so that's basically the staging system. And then there's two substages based on whether or not that cat has hypertension, which is incredibly important to measure blood pressures in these cats. Um, and whether or not that cat has proteinuria, certainly not nearly as common in cats as it is in dogs, but still, I mean, we see proteinuric cats and that's a different type of kidney disease that you need to monitor, you need to manage differently, so you need to know. Right, and we know those cats, are, like that's a negative prognostic indicator, right? So they're to be watched even more closely. And very, very much so. Um, so if, if they're hypertensive and or they've got proteinuria with their kidney disease, those, are, those mean that that cat's not going to do as well. So let's break out those two things. So first, hypertension. Uh, what is the ideal measurement that you're going to do with these cats? Because a lot of people are struggling with that too. Um, and we ju we just had a problem not a couple of, a couple of hours ago trying to get a blood pressure on a cat who was not cooperating. So it is really difficult to measure blood pressures on cats. The ideal blood pressure is going to be 120 over 80, just like in humans. And if you have 120 over 80 in a cat that's in a vet clinic. I would say that cat is probably hypotensive at home because you would expect it to be elevated in a veterinary clinic. They can get nervous um, and they will be nervous. And we've had, we've had cats that come in with astounding blood pressures. And if you just give them a little time and remeasure it, it's fine. I mean, it, it's amazing the range that they can go through, but you've got to think they've just been taken off their couch, shoved in a carrier, put in a car, taken to the clinic, sat on a bench next to a German Shepherd that barked in its face, and then you take it back, strangers take it back and, and put a, you know, something around their arm and squeeze it. I'd be hypertensive, <laughs> so the portal of things. So that's the beauty of cat-friendly practice too, if you're and, and exactly, exactly. And we see that here as well because of the types of cases we see, it's not as busy as a normal general practice as far as we're not seeing as many patients. And so we can usually get people directly into an exam room. And I tend to put the little blood pressure cuff on the cat while it's still in its carrier and leave it there while I talk to the owner. And you can just, and, I, and then I just cycle through and do blood pressures every five minutes or so, and you can just see them trend down. It's amazing. Um, when you first start, they're, they're, who's the crazy lady putting this thing on my arm? And, and then, you know, I'm talking away to their owners, getting all the information, and within 20, 30 minutes, all of a sudden the cat's blood pressure is, is much more normal, still usually high. So I would say a normal, I consider a normal cat pressure, if they have a systolic of 130, 140, I'm deliriously excited, um, even 150. Um, if they have, you know, a systolic of 200, I'm going to be concerned about that. And I'm going to recheck it and keep the cat a little longer. Um, certainly do a fundic exam to look for any bleeding. Um, and if it's a high stressed cat that has had a really rough day, I might cut it some slack and say, I'll recheck you in a few days, but it will be a few days, not a few weeks. Um, and if it's a cat that you know, you can see any retinal damage or, or anything like that, then it's a, that's a cat I'm going to treat. Um, it's the one, 180 ones that are the, the questions I get, do you treat or not treat? Mm -hmm. And those are the guys I have to come back in, in a week or so and, and see if we can get them to, to measure it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what about protein? So when are you getting worried? Oh, protein in the urine. I was yeah, like, protein, protein, yeah. protein. Um, protein in the urine. Honestly, if it's a cat, if it has a urine protein to creatinine ratio greater than 0.4, I'm, I'm already worried. 
Um, and so a lot of people in cats don't, don't measure urine protein to creatinine ratio because they don't feel it's as important as it is in dogs. And it's certainly not something that we see as commonly, but it absolutely is as important as it is in dogs. Because if we do see that they've got a high protein level in their, in their urine, we've got to intervene or those cats will progress. Um, we see that a lot with the cats that have um, ureteral or, or nephrolis, basically. Um, they tend to have a higher urine protein, maybe not necessarily you know, crazy high, but high enough that it's going to make you look a little bit more carefully. But more importantly, we're looking for the cats that have a lot of protein in their urine because they'll have a different disease process and that you're going to manage differently and you're going to need to, to work up differently. So Sherry, would you say that the mis there's a misconception there too that this the protein stick, you know, we do the chemistry stick, you, you can't really rely on those and people, we should probably be sending out urine protein creatinines? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I can't emphasize that enough. I use the urine dipstick. I mean, I, I remember I used to give a lecture to the students on, on, you know, the pros and cons of each little pad on the urine dipstick. And I remember finishing once and one of the students saying, why do we even use it? I mean, you don't trust anything on it. And it's, you know, take it together. It can give you some information, but I'm certainly not going to base, you know, a huge treatment on, on the results of a urine dipstick because they can be quite variable and particularly in cats because cat urine is, well, cat urine. Um, but the, the protein stick in, in cat urine is not reliable. And even I think it is crucial that an animal that is diagnosed with chronic kidney disease, a cat, that it, it at least have a baseline urine protein to creatinine ratio. And then going forward, if you do see a change in the dipstick, then, you know, assuming it's negative, um, the urine protein to creatinine ratio going forward, you should still check it intermittently to make sure that it's not developing proteinuria. So we've talked about diet as a treatment. What are some other treatment options that we have in these chronic cats when they start getting worse? I think when they start getting worse, one of the things that, I mean, we're tracking when we see these cats every every three months or however frequently we're seeing them, depending on their stage of disease, we look at their potassiums, we look at their phosphorus level, we look at their body weight and body condition and, and muscle mass are huge. We look at um, their red blood cell counts and we look at their acid base status. I think if, if I had to rank all of those, they all kind of go together with me, but the one that I want to kind of put asterisks around because I think it's the most ignored one is the acid base status of these patients. It is incredible how many cats are acidemic and nobody's looked. And, and it's not because they've forgotten about it, it's because it's difficult to look. I mean, most people do not get a bicarbonate back on their normal chemistry panel and having to do an additional blood gas analysis to get a bicarbonate is more money. They may not have the machine in the clinic. So there's plenty of reasons you know, I don't think people are willfully ignoring it or anything, but it is something that we can help with these cats and, and you know, they feel better when their acid-base status is, is fixed. The diet's huge. Those di the renal diets are buffered and they do make a big difference for them. Um, and so we don't see it nearly as much as we used to, but, but it's still something to look for. Um, the other thing is a low potassium. Kelly, I don't know if you know, you've been in feline practice a long time. Have you seen recent, recently, meaning over the past several years that I used to see hypokalemic cats very, very frequently and or, or cats that would develop hypokalemia because of kidney disease, even on the renal diets. But now we don't see it nearly as much because the renal diets are, are heavily supplemented with the potassium, which is really helpful for these cats. I don't see this commonly. 
Yeah, I mean, I used to I used to hand out potassium citrate like Tic Tacs, um, <laughs> yeah, to cats. But now, um, now they're. I mean, it's just not. It's just not something I I I'm handing it out like Tic Tacs, but it's for the calcium oxalate stone dogs, not for not for the acidemic cats or hypokalemic cats rather. So the, we have about five minutes left. Let's talk acute renal failure in cats. How common is it, and what can we do with it? It is incredibly common, um, and it is the bane of my existence because the majority of the cases that I end up dealing with are going to be ureteral obstruction, and I think it is. Most of the time, these cats will obstruct one of their ureters, damage one of their kidneys. Nobody notices because they're cats. And so, you know, they hid in little Johnny's closet for a day and nobody noticed while they obstructed their first kidney. But then they're running on one kidney and invariably they will obstruct that one. And so we call that the big kidney, little kidney syndrome. And those cats are remarkable in that they look okay, even with ridiculous creatinines. I mean, we have them come in you know, creatinine is 20, 24, and the cat's sitting up looking at you meowing. Um, so that's, uh, if you see that, if you see a cat and the blood work does not match the cat, there's very few things that can make a cat that azotemic and still have the cat look good. Ureteral obstruction is, is probably number one just because it's so common. Lily toxicity is the other one. The lily cats, they, they look fantastic um, and, until their values are sky high, and then all of a sudden they don't look fantastic. And that's usually when I get them, is when they're, when they're referring uh, criticalists and, and internal medicine people look at it and go, oh boy, okay, not making pee, that's bad. <laughs> so urine is always a good thing. Urine is always a good thing. Um, but I think more commonly what we're going to see as far as acute kidney injury is not this these huge extremes. We're gonna see cats that their creatinines go up a little bit, and we may think, oh, that's not that bad. but I, you know, one of the things that we need to be mindful of is these are older animals with less renal reserve. And so when you're doing dentals, um, you know, they come in, they've been held off food and water, they're a little bit dehydrated. And then we put them under anesthesia and they get hypotensive. We clean their teeth, we give them an, a non-steroidal for, for inflammation. And then they go home and their little mouths are sore and they're kind of groggy, so they don't eat or drink even longer. So they're dehydrated, they've had anesthesia, They've had a non-steroidal, and it's, it's a recipe for acute kidney injury. So some of these cats that are slow to recover from anesthesia, maybe, you know, are rough for, acting rough for a couple of days, maybe they've got an acute kidney injury. Um, and that can be prevented just by maintaining hydration, blood pressure, et cetera. So for the, the calcium oxalate stones uh, in the upper urinary tract, there are some new treatments available right now, uh, you know, uh, there are some surgical therapies, there's some stenting, there's lots of different stuff that's coming up right now. So what is your favorite therapy for a cat that is obstructed? Prevention. Um, so no, these cats, I mean, the prevention part. And, and, that's, and that's the problem. They're, they're, what I always tell people is the options we have when we have a cat that's profoundly azotemic and you know has obstructed its only really functional kidney, it, it becomes a surgical emergency. Um, if it's a big enough stone that you can see it on ultrasound, and, and we see, I mean, I've ultrasounded two today. I mean, it's something that we see very frequently and that I see for follow-up, but the, the options for dealing with the ureteral obstruction, um, it used to be just ureterotomy, go in, 
open up the ureter, remove the stones, suture close the ureter, and Bob's your uncle. The problem is those ureters look like a piece of dental floss. They're tiny, tiny little things. And so whether or not that surgery was successful was highly dependent on the surgeon. And, and actually most of these are highly dependent on the surgeon, but it was a really scary thing to do. Um, then along came the stents. Um, it looks like a straw with a little curly cue on each end. And I mean, they can be placed surgically or in dogs, we will put them in with a cystoscope. But one of the little curly cues goes into the renal pelvis. It goes down in the center of the ureter and the other ones in the bladder. And everybody thinks it's there so the urine can run through the stent. It's actually there, it causes passive dilation of the ureter itself. And so that's why the stents are in place. And they use them in humans all the time, but it's usually a temporary thing in humans. They're taking them out within days to oh, you know, a couple of weeks. Um, and cats, we're putting them in with the intent of leaving them in there. And there can be, you know, there's, there's pros and cons to it, but there can be a lot of complications. The other new thing that, that people have been doing, I guess it's not new now, but I've been using what we call subs or subcutaneous urethral bypass. And those we employ pretty much when we've just kind of tapped out from the ureter and decided that it's not going to be fixable. There's huge strictures because that's the other thing. If there is scar tissue and stricture within the ureter, a stent won't dilate that. So our, if we are dealing with um, something like that, then we need another option. And basically we call it urinary diversion. We put a, a tube in the kidney, a tube in the bladder, and we hook them together with a little port that's located under the skin. So we've built a new ureter essentially. Um, it's, it sounds simple, it's a lot more complicated than that. And there can be a lot of complications with them. We have, you know, but again, it's better than, than not having urine because that This is has been great. Kelly, you have one more last question before we finish the second part. Well, one more last question. I guess I was curious, Sherry, I know you were involved in dialysis. Do you see a lot of cats that come in and get dialysis? Is that common? We do. We do. It's not, I'm, dialysis is one of those things that comes in waves. Um, and we used to dialyze, the number one reason we would dialyze these cats would be ureteral obstruction. And what we would do, dialysis does nothing to help the ureteral obstruction. It just keeps the cat alive, the cat that's not making any urine. And hopefully gives that cat enough time that it will pass the obstruction by itself. The problem is that's, you know, the whole time that kidney's obstructed, it's getting further damage. So we would dialyze, about 30% of them would pass it. Um, but now those are the cats that we now send directly to surgery because of the stents and the subs. Um, the, the second most common reason we dialyze cats are lilies, lily toxicity. It's just so common. Um, or not the lilies. Yeah, back to and, and so we do not have a really good way to completely eradicate calcium oxalate stones. So what if an owner is worried? So an owner had a cat that had that. And now you say she comes back with a new cat and she said, I don't want to go through this. What would you advise that person? Get a dog. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I, I, and again, I am very jaded and bitter with calcium oxalate stones in cats and, and urethral obstructions just because I see it so often. I mean, it's, it's, it's a daily thing here as far as the animals. I'm either rechecking somebody with stents or subs or sending somebody for stents or subs. And it, it's one of those things that just breaks my heart. And if I could take one disease away, it would be this for cats. Um, and I know there's probably other ones that are much more logical, but if I had an owner that had, I'll take myself, for example, <laughs> I had um, one of my Persians I lost a few years ago, he had had multiple surgeries on his ureters, but 
as far as everybody else, there's a reason that I'm so crazed about how much water my cats drink and, and what food they're eating. And, you know, the husband came home with a bag of temptations treats and I almost divorced him. So it's just, I mean, you just have to be very careful. Um, so feeding a, a good, balanced, sane diet, um, and Southern California is not exactly known for its sane diets, um, but it's very important that we have, that we have diets that are not too high in protein or too high in, you know, whatever. Um, and so feeding a sane, balanced diet, making sure they're, they're well hydrated, and then screening these cats. Um, I, again, I'm, I'm a little bit excessive, well, a lot excessive in my cats, and then everybody gets an ultrasound when they get adopted, and then they have it every form um, going forward, so they have it pretty frequently. Um, but I'm looking for stones, and, and even on my baby, even on one of the 14-month-olds, there's a little tiny bit of mineralization in one of his kidneys. It's wow. And one of my other cats um, was the, the one in this picture, at three months of age when I adopted him, he had an obstructed kidney, which is, that's not normal, certainly, but it's normal for me. But um, so these cats can develop this early and silently. And so the single most important thing to do, palpate those kidneys at the time of, at the time of the physical exam. It sounds stupid, but, and it sounds easy, and it is. Just compare them. Is one bigger than the other? If they're different sizes, do something. This has been great. Thank you so much, uh, Sherry. This is, you know, time flies when, when we're having fun and talking about cats and renal disease is always fun. So this has been fantastic. So I really appreciate it. And, and Kelly, thank you for being our co-host. This has been awesome. Uh, you know, I've learned so much. Every time I talk to you, Sherry, I learn more things. Uh, so lots about things, but I, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about this disease and, and how to manage it. So. Yes, so thank you. Thank you both. Thank what a you, wonderful Sherry. thing. Thank, thank you. you. Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August consultations in feline internal medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs. And you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatPetSusan. Dr. Yurla Kirpenstein is a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVETSX. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph. And if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. 
Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove screwbite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page at per podcast. 